by Emma's Revolution. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. On today's program, my colleague Terry Matson will interview Erica Takeo of Friends of the AT ATC about the sanctions on Nicaragua. Terry and Erica are both currently in Nicaragua as part of the sanctions kill delegation. In the second half of the show, I will interview Dr. Angelo Rivero Santos about Colombia's role in the hybrid war in Venezuela. But first, some news. In Ecuador, the public ombudsperson requested that charges related to crimes against humanity be filed against President Lenin Moreno and his cabinet. This comes following a report by the Special Commission for Truth and Justice in October 2019 that found that the state and government authorities were responsible for excessive force during mass protests that rocked the country. The protests in October 2019 were caused by an austerity package proposed by the Moreno government and led to the government being temporarily, lo temporarily relocated after the capital city of Quito was overrun by protesters. In Venezuela, the army clashed with, with a Colombian paramilitary group over the weekend, leading to the capture of 32 suspects, the destruction of six camps, and the seizure of weapons, ammunition, explosives, vehicles, and drugs. President Nicolas Maduro announced that there would be a zero-tolerance policy for armed groups coming from Colombia into Venezuelan territory. In Bolivia, the case against former coup dictator Janine Añez continues. She's facing charges of terrorism, sedition, and conspiracy for her, her role in the coup and its aftermath, including the massacres at Sencata and Sacaba, where peaceful protesters were gunned down by security forces. The Bolivian government is guaranteeing her due process, which is much more than her victims enjoyed. And now over to Terry. We are, um, I'm sitting here uh, on Corn Island off the Nicaragua um, Caribbean coast. And my guest is Erica Takeo. She's coordinator of Friends of the ATC. And she's joining us from Managua, Nicaragua. So we are talking with you from Central America, um, mainland Nicaragua and Caribbean coastal Nicaragua. So Erica, I'm so pleased you had time to talk with us today. And um, just for our audience, I'd like everybody to know that Erica and I just finished, principally Erica, I have to say, um, leading a 10-day uh, delegation here in Nicaragua. Um, it was a Friends of the ATC uh, partnership with Sanctions Kill. We spent 10 days studying uh, the early sanctions regime the U.S. has placed on Nicaragua. Um, sanctions regime meaning economic warfare against Nicaragua, we started in Managua, we went to the Northern Caribbean coast, we've been in homestays, in campesino communities, and so we have a lot to talk with you about today. It's been really um, phenomenal, the 10 days that we were traveling with you and your um, compatriots at Friends of the ATC who were 
the backbone of our delegation logistics and just watching and witnessing how the work is done, particularly um, in the in the rural uh, communities. But first, Erica, can you uh, tell our audience um, FSLN, FLSN is the Liberation Party, Frente Sandinista Liberacion Nacional, just so our audience knows what we're referring to. Um, let, so let's start with um, why we're here. We, um, we had this idea to educate, <laughs> we had a pretty wild idea actually, to, um, to bring a group of people to Nicaragua to study what is going on here regarding US foreign policy, specific foreign policy in the form of economic warfare. And I know a lot of our, many people in our audience will, uh, are familiar with the 60 year blockade economic war against Cuba, um, very uh, strong sanctions, economic sanctions against Venezuela, uh, beginning December of 14 and more specifically March of 2015, accelerated in August of 2017. And so we're starting to see the same form of warfare accelerate here in Nicaragua, which is why um, you and I wanted to bring a group of people here to study this, what this looks like in its early phases. And so we were in Managua for several days. We had several government meetings. We, we were able to come to a better understanding of um, Nicaragua's access to foreign loans, restructuring foreign debt, qualifying for loans to um, respond to COVID-19 and, and respond to the hurricanes um, last fall those loans are not available to a sanctioned government. So we studied that. We went to um, two rural communities. Well, hold on. Is that better? Yeah, so just, I think I just yeah, okay. Just I'm sorry, everyone. We had just a little glitch with our internet connection regarding sound. So you can hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay, so then we also went to um, two rural communities, one in Esteli and one in Hinotega. Uh, Esteli, which the principal industry is tobacco, Hinotega, principal industry is coffee. We uh, then went on to the northern coast of the Caribbean to study the um, after of the results of the hurricane and how the governments responded and also to study the beef cattle um, issue which has become controversial in the United States, uh, conflict beef. And we can tell you that there's very little conflict involved with this beef and this labeling of Nicaraguan beef has basically served to close the U.S. market to Nicaraguan, to this Nicaraguan product, which is also a form of economic warfare. Um, so let's talk, Erica, a little bit about what... Um, what we saw, I guess probably for our audience, we had some very strong government meetings, um, but one of the things that I think everyone enjoyed the most, and there were 13 of us on this trip, was going to rural communities. And I mean, we, particularly in Esteli, we like got up at sunrise and worked. <laughs> we, we planted pitahayas, learned about that as a unique um, crop 
it grows only in Nicaragua and it is cultivated for export to the United States, actually, the fruit, it's a succulent. There is a short little video that we've done on the propagation of that crop. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the importance of these rural communities as the backbone of the ATC and also how um, the productive, the, the private, or I, shouldn't, I don't wanna use private, the individual land ownership families being able to own their land for cultivation um, creates food security. And that also is going to be um, a buffer against um, the onslaught of sanctions that we're anticipating against Nicaragua. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, this is, um, as, as the name ATC would suggest, the rural areas is really the heart of where ATC's base is and the ATC's organizing is in is in rural areas with um, peasants, small farmers. Um, and the backbone for this is really what I mentioned when I introduced the ATC, the agrarian reform, which provided land to lots of families who uh, previously had never had land. And having the land is the basis for being able to grow food uh, for one's family and for one's community. Um, the ATC uh, takes on a lot of different roles in rural areas. Um, as Terry saw in La Montanita, which is a community just outside of the department capital of Esteli. Um, the ATC has a couple of uh, multi-sectoral unions as well as farmer cooperatives in the area. And one of the big areas of interest um, and of organizing that area recently has been what's called agroecology, which is basically a model of agriculture that's an alternative to conventional methods of agriculture that are very focused on lots of chemical use, monoculture, um, meaning just a couple of different crops rather than diversified systems um, that are really based upon um, the legacies of what we call the Green Revolution, which was particularly imp implemented after World War II as a way to make use of chemicals that had been used in war and now they needed to, be, uh, they needed to make a market for it. So they decided to use it in the industry of food, which is totally wild and totally crazy. Um, and totally inappropriate to defend life of peoples, but also for Mother Earth. So um, the ATC has been organizing in that community to make basically an agroecological demonstration farm, which Terry participated in one of the workshops that was, that was taking place there, which is basically how to support communities that are in um, what's called the dry corridor of Nicaragua, of an area that's particularly affected by climate change and that um, we'll have less and less rain every year, as well as more extreme climatic events. When it rains, it'll rain way too much. Um, so how to have farms um, and farming families that are more resilient. So that includes um, lots of the, the implementation of a lot of soil and water conservation practices, diversification of production, um, integration of animals into the farm. So uh, Terry saw the example Definitely. of raising <laughs> pigs, <laughs> a way of raising pigs. Them. <laughs> called the deep bed model, yeah. um, as well as how to include the whole family in, in um, participating in farm work, which I think that Terry also saw very much um, in, in the example there. So the ATC accompanies families um, in this whole process of the countryside. But as you were so importantly mentioning in your question, um, the base of this, the ATC does this in La Montanita, but they do it in so many other communities in Nicaragua, there was half of the group that was also in a community called La Virgen, which is in the coffee producing region of Hinotega in the northern part of the country and other parts of the country. 
And these, um, all of these different processes and different popular organizations supporting the production of food on land owned by peasant families means that Nicaragua, um, Nicaraguans consume about 90%, um, about 90% of the food that Nicaraguans produce, sorry, I'm getting this all mixed up, about 90% of the food that Nicaraguans consume is produced by Nicaraguans, and about 80% of that is produced by small farmers, by peasants. So the agrarian reform, families having their own land to grow food is really the basis for food sovereignty, which is really, really key, as you say, as a tool against any kind of imperious aggression, because oftentimes imperious aggression will immediately attack a country's food supply. But it's very, very difficult to attack a country's food supply if it's basically a democratized food supply, if it's divided up um, equally and locally between communities and the way that that food is distributed is very locally. Um, Nicaraguans don't buy food very much in their supermarkets. They buy it from the local markets, from their neighbors. It doesn't go very far out of the community. It might go, the farthest it might go is the, you know, the department capital and some of it might go to Managua as well, but um, it doesn't really go into you know, the supermarket chains or the corporate controlled chains. So that's, so that's really, really key when we think about, think about sanctions and imperialist aggressions. And there's already been, you know, a couple of examples here in Nicaragua uh, living through that, including the 2018 coup attempt in which um, the opposition tried to put roadblocks, or they did put roadblocks around the country, which stopped the dis distribution of certain kinds of products, but never stopped the distribution of food. You know, in the United States, for our audience to hear, oh, everybody just shops at their neighbor. They produce their own food, or they just go and shop, you know, with their uh, with the locally produced food in, in the States, that's a very, um, you know, what do we call that eating within, you know, no more than a hundred mile radius of your, uh, you know, the food's not uh, produced farther than 100 mile radius from your home or the restaurants you choose to frequent. And it's a very, uh, almost um, a, a luxury to eat that way in the States. It's expensive and it's, I think you could even uh, call it an elitist, um, diet in the states, whereas here in Nicaragua, this is just how this is how the food is produced on small local farms. This is how people produce their food. This is how they eat, and um, it's just an amazing thing to witness. I think regarding sanctions, there's two things in in, in having you mentioned ninety percent food sovereign. So this means the country is not susceptible to an import to um, having imported food products blockaded from the country and also getting off the chemical farming means that there is doesn't one, there's no um, additional uh, environmental damage to producing the food, but also as we've seen in Venezuela, chemical agriculture, fertilizers, pesticides, some of those countries have been sanctioned prevented from selling their product to farmers in Venezuela. So again, you have this sovereignty through the whole food chain in Nicaragua, which is fabulous for the people to be producing on this level, but also is a buffer for any sort of economic uh, warfare that we know is already in place and, and accelerating. So let's talk a little bit also about, um, let's talk a little bit more about the dry quarter because we don't talk enough about climate change in the US 
And the dry porter does have some effect on um, what the U.S. narrative is regarding quote unquote conflict beef. So what is the dry corridor and, um, and what's, and it's expanding. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So the dry corridor refers to a region that actually spreads throughout the whole Mesoamerican region, goes all the way to Panama. That is a, that is an area. Well, as the name would say, um, it's kind of um, desertifying um, or drying out with as one of the effects of climate change. Nicaragua and Honduras are some of the countries in the whole entire world that are most affected by climate change. Um, and so, as I mentioned, when I was talking about the case of La Montanita, it basically means that these regions are going to get less and less water. Um, the dry seasons are going to be drier and the rainy seasons um, will have longer periods of dryness or drought. And when it rains, it's going to be a whole bunch of rain at once. But the challenge with that means that <laughs> a lot of the agricultural system replies, relies on water to be able to produce food for the country. Nicaragua is pretty well off in the sense that it already has the base of people to grow food for the country. But if there's not water, good distribution of irrigation systems, which most, most families don't have access to irrigation systems, which are very, very, very expensive, um, that puts it at very, very high risk. Um, for, you know, for these very extreme climatic events. Um, a good example of that being the two hurricanes that took place last year, Hurricanes Eta and Iota in November of last year. Um, Let me just tell our audience that there is, that mm -hmm. we did an episode of what the F is going on in Latin America, November of 2020 with Dr. Paul Oquist to talk about the Nicaraguan government response to the hurricanes. And we juxtaposed that with the second part of the program with Gerardo Torres from Partido Libre, um, in Honduras to show just how um, the Honduran government privatized neoliberal form of economy was not able, did not respond and uh, versus the response to the Nicaraguan government. And that you can find on um, our YouTube channel under videos. And it's worth listening to, to understand the response, how profound it was. And we did witness some of those communities on our trip. Anyway, yeah. sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, that's it's absolutely right. I highly recommend that interview too. I think it's an excellent and gives a, a, a very important compare and contrast between two neighboring countries. Um, and so um, in terms of the conflict beef issue, um, first of all, I want to really recommend that people read an article that was published by John Perry with support from the Tortilla Con, Mal Tortilla Con Sal Media Collective um, that was put published in FAIR. Um, that Fairness and accuracy it, and reporting. Yes, thank you, Terry. Well, yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's okay. provides, that provides a whole, um, a really, really important um, background or outline about this conflict big story that came out a couple of months ago in a number of media, media, US media sources. It was picked up in other countries as well, including the UK, and goes uh, myth by myth, basically debunking a lot of the different issues that are being completely manipulated in that piece. Um, one of which is Terry you're mentioning the topic of the dry corridor. Um, so basically the conflict issue is basically this accusation that in the time of the pandemic um, last year, um, the US um, needed to import meat more beef um, and they started to import more beef um, from the country of Nicaragua. So Nicaragua was exp exporting more beef to the US, but the accusation is that that beef is all coming at basically the blood of indigenous slaughter, indigenous massacre of indigenous peoples as you know, big scale 
livestock producers um, take over indigenous land, particularly on the Caribbean coast of, of um, Nicaragua, which is where the majority of um, Nicaragua's indigenous population is. But um, in relation to climate change in the dry corridor and something that was emphasized by um, the uh, coordinator of the regional autonomous government of the Northern Caribbean coast, Carlos Aleman said, um, of course there's cattle, <laughs> there's cattle production in the Caribbean coast. Um, you can't lie and say there's no cattle production, but there's a number of decent reasons in, in that for that, including the fact that you know the expansion of the agricultural frontiers, in part because of the dry cord on the along the Pacific coast, is making agriculture more and more difficult to practice. On the other hand, he also mentioned that a lot of people are practicing, you know, that have livestock on the Caribbean coast, particularly because of all of the advancements thanks to um, both the national government and these processes of the San Anisio Popular Revolution that have implemented lots of different social programs, um, especially the, the importance of infrastructure and good roads that go into very rural areas, but Some also the across- the roads in Latin America, I will add. Excellent roads here in Nicaragua. Excellent roads here in Nicaragua. And also the process of building regional autonomy that's really focused on indigenous and Afro-descendant communities being able to control their communities, make their own decisions. And that also includes the right to be able to have livestock. So, you know, I think um, it relates most to climate change, but it also relates to these other really important processes of autonomy on the, on the Caribbean coast, this, this topic of conflict beef as well as another, uh, a, a number of other issues that I don't, I don't know if we have time to get into today or not, if that's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit more about the indigenous communities on the Caribbean in these autonomous regions because it's a part of the country that I think most of our audience probably um, is not that familiar with. Um, it's profoundly beautiful. It's a, it, I mean, it is definitely Caribbean versus Mesoamerican Pacific Coast. It is a, it's fantastically beautiful here, but it is definitely a Caribbean culture, uh, you know, heritage-wise and, and everything. Um, let's, Let's talk a little bit more about these communities. Also, um, before we completely leave the conflict beef issue, one of the things we learned uh, in Billy is that cattle is a banking system, is a form of banking for the people in the autonomous regions. And can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Because I mean, it's really fascinating that it's used as investment in banking for people. Yeah, well, this was something and not was on explained. a large scale, little family, you know, small families. <laughs> this was something that um, was explained to us by, again, by the coordinator of the regional government, Carlos um, Aleman Cunningham, um, who had a really excellent meeting with us. We talked a lot of about a lot of different aspects of the Caribbean coast and this process of construction, constructing on autonomy. But um, he really emphasized, you know, the importance of communities, especially indigenous communities. Um, that can be very remote, that might ha not have um, bank accounts or access to banks or other ways of storing, you know, their funds, um, but buy up cattle and have cattle, which can sell for a good price. And so if, you know, they need to save something up, they might buy some cattle, have them. And whenever they need to, you know, pay some kind of big cost or anything, they can, they can sell the, the cattle. But it's really not, um, the, the folks on the Caribbean coast are not, uh, the majority of them are not raising cattle um, thinking about thinking about exportation it's uh, sorry export <laughs> they're thinking more about you know consumption local consumption in the community 
as well as like you said this new interesting thing that we learned about the you know being their own their their own banking system yeah that was fascinating for me to learn that and really important actually so when we uh when when our delegation went to Bowie, we flew from Managua to Bowie, and when we arrived at the airport, we had to go through customs and immigration because this is an autonomous region um, with its own governments, its its own uh, management. And let's let's talk about the structure, how these autonomous regions are structured, because this was you know, we didn't physically leave. Of Nicaragua, but we did enter a new zone and we did go through um, customs and immigration when we arrived and when we left. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So, so Nicaragua, um, for folks who don't know, is in the middle of the Central American Isthmus and it has coasts both along the Pacific, um, the Pacific Ocean, and the Caribbean. Um, and, and it's in part because of that, that the U.S. has always geo geopolitically been interested in Nicaragua and they actually wanted to build a canal in Nicaragua before they were able to build one in what we call today Panama. Um, and uh, about half of the country, uh, half of the national territory today in Nicaragua is um, part of what Terry is talking about, this autonomous region, um, the Caribbean coast divided into two parts the northern, the northern Caribbean coast autonomous region and the southern Caribbean coast autonomous region. It has its own regional government. Um, and uh, really the base of a lot, about a lot of these, uh, of the autonomous region are the territorial and community governments, which are basically, um, to take a step back, um, with the triumph of the San Anisa revolution and the creation of a new constitution, um, the, the Constitution recognized the importance, uh, basically recognized Nicaragua as a plurinational nation. So there are mestizo peoples, but there are also indigenous and Afro-descendant peoples coming from different pasts and different histories and recognizing that their histories, their languages and their territories need to be respected and also have a legal backing behind them. So one of the processes of the San Luis Revolution, which is also part of the FSLN's 13-point um, historic program, has been basically how to respect all these different components of the Caribbean coast and indigenous and Afro-descendant populations. That has included giving land title to hundreds of indigenous and Afro-descendant communities. So there are um, most of the Caribbean coast and there are parts of the Pacific coast too that are indigenous or Afro-descendant territory. Um, communally held land title by those peoples, each with their own distinct way of governing um, with local community governments that make up a territorial government, but each distinct to um, the different peoples. So we have um, the Mesquito indigenous peoples, Mayagna, we have Creole, Garifuna, and Mestizos as well on the, on the Caribbean coast. And a lot of this process of constructing autonomy has been res respecting local ways of governance and using that base um, to inform what's happening higher up on the higher levels of government, both in terms of the regional autonomous governance, but also the national government, because it's not like the, the it's not like the national government has no presence in the Caribbean coast. It does, um, but it really respects the autonomy of the regional autonomous governments, and the way that it you know is supporting what's happening in that area is, is for example, with the passage of the hurricanes, the national government sent over five hundred thousand. 
um, uh, sheets of um, metal roofing to help repair houses. They sent lots of boats. Within 10 days. Within 10 days. Within 10 days. Yeah. They sent boats. They sent food. They sent a lot of electricity restored. Exactly. So they played a really big role, for example, in that, um, in terms of the, you know, immediate recovery process. But at the same time, like Terry says, it really feels like a whole different, um, whole different culture and whole different place in comparison to the Pacific coast. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for a wonderful 10 days on the ground here in Nicaragua. It was one of the most amazing delegations I've ever had the honor to be part of. And, um, you and your team just did a wonderful, wonderful job hosting us and teaching us so much. And, um, and the diversity of the people in the land, which just so strongly came through. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So I so thank you for that. Thank you so much, Terry. And thank you for having me on, on your program. Okay, everyone, we'll see you uh, next week. Venezuela demostró que quería la libertad, que quería la libertad y sacar al invasor. Que quería la libertad y sacar al invasor. Fueron Miguel y Guayca y Puro, afroindígenas valientes. Fueron Miguel y Guayca y Puro, afroindígenas valientes. Verdaderos precursores, verdaderos precursores de la Venezuela insurgente. Verdaderos precursores de la Venezuela insurgente. Hablan de 200 años que el pueblo se levantó. Hablan de 200 años que el pueblo se levantó. Olvidando los 300, olvidando los 300 que el mismo subió y luchó. Olvidando los 300 que el mismo subió y luchó. Esconde la realidad es un error y cinismo que no va a tener otro nombre que el vivo y rancio racismo. A los pueblos originarios y a los afrodescendientes del racismo intelectual that was Victor Papira Armas with La Llamada Indoafricana, the Indo-African Cry. This Venezuelan Joropo celebrates 500 years of indigenous and African resistance to colonialism and denounces the racism of the country's bourgeoisie. Welcome back. I'm Leonardo Flores of Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. I'm joined now by Dr. Angelo Rivero Santos, teaching associate professor at Georgetown University. Welcome to the program, Angelo. Thank you, Leonardo. It's good to be here. So I wanted to talk to you about the relations between Venezuela and Colombia. You know, historically, these two countries have had complex but working relations. How did that change since the election of Ivan Duque in Colombia in 2018? Uh, well, Leonardo, that, that is a very good question. You know, Venezuela and Colombia have had, um, um, you know, it's, it's a historic relationship that has had its ups and downs throughout, throughout two centuries, really. Um, and um, it's uh, perhaps over the past two decades, I would uh, say that it is one of the most, uh, one of two very difficult bilateral relationships that Caracas has had. Um, and your question is a good one because since his uh, campaign to be president, uh, President Duque, then candidate Duque, 
uh, did not recognize uh, the Venezuelan government. Uh, he, uh, in fact, during the, during the campaign, he used uh, uh, Venezuela um, as a political tool, really, to uh, to uh, uh, to promote his uh, his political program uh, and called very early on uh, the government in Caracas a dictatorship. Um, uh, he came to power and he didn't name an ambassador. Um, uh, uh, and uh, soon thereafter, uh, early in 2019. Um, he and, as you know, many other countries, uh, after the events that led to uh, the proclamation by the then president of the National Assembly as uh, interim president of Venezuela, uh, 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 you know, uh, he recognized Mr. Guaido. So President Duque has never really recognized Caracas. And Caracas, in turn, after the events, uh, you may recall and your audience may recall the events in the city of Cucuta where humanitarian aid was uh, used to try to force entry into Venezuela through Cucuta. Uh, President Maduro broke relations and recalled all the personnel, the diplomatic personnel in Colombia back to Caracas. So um, there hasn't really been a relationship, uh, be, a diplomatic relationship between Caracas and Bogota. Bogota, Bogota decided to have a uh, relationship with, uh, um, you know, someone that uh, declared himself president. So there hasn't been one. And that includes even cooperation between health ministries uh, up till early last year when the pandemic hit, Yeah, right? yeah. Well, there, there was communication, as I understand, from the work of some NGOs at the border, that there, has, there was an attempt uh, uh, to have um, a, a, a ministry of Health level talks, because as you know, you know the 2,000 plus kilometers border is a very complex border, uh, where you see, um, um, you know, the pandemic really hitting hard local communities. And uh, I understand that uh, there was an attempt uh, um, of a conversation, a couple of conversations between the ministries of health, uh, in part mediated by the Pan American Health Organization. Uh, but I frankly do not know if those conversations have continued, at least not in the open. Wow. And Colombia's kind of role in Venezuela is, as you said, complicated. And, and I want to bring back, uh, bring to the attention uh, an event that happened last year, that May 3rd, 2020, a group of around 50 mercenaries sailed to Venezuela with the intention of kidnapping President Maduro and handing him over to the U.S. government, what's known as Operation Gideon. Uh, can you tell us about the role Colombia played in this incident? Yeah, well, you know, again, we, we uh, what does the evidence show, right? Let's go with the evidence. Let's go with the facts. The latest fact is that the Attorney General's office in Colombia a few days ago uh, acknowledged that this operation was planned in Colombian territory, was planned in Bogota. Uh, ever since this happened, of course, the Colombian government has tried to deny any kind of involvement. Um, I think investigations are pending uh, everywhere to see exactly what role the Colombian uh, government in particular may or may not have played. But when you look at the evidence, uh, you know, questions arise, right? How was this plan in Bogota? Um, 
we understand from reports, even by the statements of some of the people involved, including the president and founder of, the, of Silver Corp, which was the company, the security company that apparently was behind this. Uh, Mr. Grudeau, um, uh, uh, I believe his name is, has uh, stated that he met uh, with Venezuelan opposition leaders in Bogota. Um, we do know that there were campment sites where training was taking place in northern Colombia. Um, we know that there are four uh, people of Venezuelan origin implicated in this operation that were recently sanctioned by Colombia's Attorney General. We know because of press reports and different articles that have come out that there, was, um, uh, there were guns, there was armament that somehow found itself into Colombian territory for this uh, adventure. Uh, we know that the boats that uh, tried, as you point out, uh, to uh, land in Venezuela through the Venezuelan Caribbean coast on May 3rd came out of Colombian territory. So the evidence leads you to wonder who knew. And the reason that is important is because I am sure you know, Leonardo, um, Colombia is usually heralded as one of uh, the uh, great examples in terms of uh, security, right? In terms of uh, um, uh, intelligence services being very efficient, uh, a, a military that is very efficient. Um, uh, we have, you know, those of us that have lived in Washington for a few years know how much her, uh, Colombia is heralded as an example in terms of uh, security or fighting drugs. If we assume that to be true, then how come they didn't know? It is either gross negligence on the part of uh, you know, some of the Colombian intelligence services, um, or, <laughs> you know, or um, there was something um, that I believe one of the Venezuelan women that has been in prison over this has said uh, in different statements that there were members of Columbus intelligence services who knew. Now, you know, we all know how intelligence services work. You know, there are a chain of commands. Uh, sometimes they operate uh, in many cases away from uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge of many in high places of government, but it makes you wonder something so sensitive as to conspiring against the government of another country um, that nobody knew. That to me, as an analyst uh, and as a researcher, it's just rather interesting. So I guess we will have to find out. I am sure this is an issue that is not going to go away. Um, I believe uh, not only in Colombia, Venezuela, but also in the United States, we should be taking, uh, we should be conducting investigations as to how is it that a U.S.-based company out of Florida can actually, uh, you know, promote uh, uh, um, uh, operations to topple the governments of other countries. That uh, is just uh, very interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And Goudreau, the, the president of that mercenary company, mm -hmm. uh, also claims that the that officials from the Trump administration were involved. That's what he has said. He gave uh, 
there were several things written about this. The BBC had a good report. Rolling Stones, I remember reading a report on Rolling Stones where he makes, uh, he makes those charges. So uh, let's hope that an investigation is undertaken and that we come to know the truth. I think it is important to know the truth. And so you have Operation Gideon, you have the 2018 failed assassination attempt by drone against President Maduro when uh, drones laden with C4 were you know, moments away from murdering him and the entire cabinet of the Venezuelan government. Uh, these drone, this attack apparently originated in Colombia according to the, what the Venezuelan government alleges. You have Colombia's role in cocaine trafficking. Colombia is the world's biggest producer and the biggest uh, transit country of cocaine by far in South America. And yet conventional wisdom in Washington is, has it that Venezuela is the one that poses a security risk, not just to Colombia, but to the entire region. Well, I mean, the reality might seem to be the other way around, that it's Colombia that's posing a major threat, uh, particularly to Venezuela. Would you agree with this and, and why? Aren't there any kind of objective discussions about this in Washington? Well, Leonardo, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think, Leonardo, one needs to see this in the context of the geopolitics of the region. Um, I, my analysis uh, as an international relations person is that uh, uh, this cannot be explained just uh, 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 focusing on the relationship between Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, the re Let me go to your first, your, the last point of your question first. The reason why you say that there's no objectivity in the discussions in Washington DC on this particular issue is very clear to me. Um, and that is because Colombia has proven to be over the past 25 years, perhaps Washington's closest ally in South America. This has been true for both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, it is also the fact that uh, when uh, Venezuela began its process with President Chavez back in 1998-1999, both Colombia and Washington uh, saw this as a threat uh, to their security. By that they meant a threat to uh, you know, they are, they are uh, political systems. Uh, this was true in Colombia under President Pastrana. Uh, this was true, very true under President Uribe when the relations went back and forth. This uh, was true under President Juan Manuel Santos as well. When relations went back and forth and Venezuela even played a role as, a, uh, 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 as an observer in the, in, in the process that led to peace in Colombia. Uh, you mentioned uh, Gideon and the 2018 events, but uh, don't forget that Colombia, since it began to look at the issue of drugs as a war on drugs, and since Colombia declared organizations like the FARC and the ELN as terrorist organizations, they have had the full support of Washington because it linked the war against terrorism after the attacks of September 11th with what the Colombians refer to as terrorism, um, which is you know the long civil war that it had with uh, the, between the government, the FARC, and the ELN. So don't forget Operation Operation Phoenix. Uh, that was the operation on March 1st, 2008, 
where Uribe felt uh, bold enough to bombard Ecuadorian territories, particularly the Sucumbios province of Ecuador, where he, you know, 24 people died. And, a, uh, and uh, uh, the second in command of the time of the, of the FARC, Raul Reyes, was, uh, was uh, killed. So Colombia has felt, uh, 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 it seems to me that Colombia has felt that it has an ally in Washington, as long as uh, the argument is the fight against terrorism and the war on drugs. In that context, um, those of us that have followed Venezuela, studied Venezuela know that uh, uh, the Bolivarian revolution that was uh, began with President Chavez has been seen as a threat, has been seen as a threat. And all, everything that has come out of Colombia to try to prevent um, uh, um, uh, or to try to influence events in Venezuela and the Bolivarian revolution, um, you know, Caracas has seen as a threat. Uh, not only Operacion Phoenix, but also uh, you may recall, Leonardo, or those of us that uh, have followed this issue for a long time know that perhaps the greatest threat was when President Alvaro Uribe announced that he was uh, allowing the, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the presence of, uh, of uh, U.S. bases along the border with Venezuela back in 2008. Uh, so, uh, this, this was a major threat to Venezuela as... Uh, as, uh, as it should have been. So, um, and of late, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, Gideon, the, um, not recognizing the legitimacy of the government in Caracas, recognizing someone that uh, just proclaimed himself president, has been seen as a serious threat in Venezuela. Um, um, and uh, I guess Gideon is, uh, is the latest example. So, you know, Caracas has, uh, has uh, reasons to be concerned about its security due to some of the actions that take place in Colombian territory geared towards Venezuela. Venezuela was just accused without any proof of interference in the 2020 U.S. elections by the U.S. Director of National Intelligence. Yet it was Colombian elected officials that openly supported Trump and called Joe Biden a so socialist in messages targeting Florida Latinos. And Colombia is also currently interfering in Ecuador's presidential election. Uh, its attorney general was just went to Quito in an attempt to smear leading candidate Andres Arauz. Uh, do you think Colombia is going to face any consequences for this electoral interference, or is it going to get a free pass because, as you said, it's the U.S.'s primary ally in the region? I don't think. I mean, I think the statements by the Southern Command. Uh, I've read them. And I was uh, I was uh, uh, stricken actually by by the ideology behind it. Frankly, usually when uh, you know uh, the armed forces and the Southern Command and some analysts speak, uh, uh, they try to remain objective in a way. You know, just let's base the analysis on facts. What are the facts, right? And uh, when uh, Countries like Venezuela are accused of interfering in U.S. elections with others. Um, uh, one has to wonder what the motivation is or what the proof is. I haven't seen the proof that, uh, that uh, you know, Venezuela interfered in the elections. Uh, the only proof, as you may recall, uh, was the accusation of a company that operated in Venezuela some time back 
that somebody in the former Trump's administration accused President Chavez of interfering, and President Chavez has been dead for seven years, right? So, you know, I, when, when the problem that I see when you let ideology come in the way of analysis is that you begin to see uh, others um, uh, as an issue of values and ideology and not of national interests. There is a big difference between the two, as, uh, as you know, Leonardo. And um, because of that, um, as we have seen in other places like Saudi Arabia and, and other countries that we could also claim, um, you know, uh, have a record of, of human rights that is questionable. Um, I guess in the, in, in the case of Colombia and uh, what you mentioned, the, the interference that some in Ecuador have claimed they have made on the local elections, I, I, don't, think, I don't think there is a chance that Colombia will face any sanctions. Um, it, it, I, I would be surprised if even a democratic administration uh, places any kind of sanctions on, on Colombia because of what the Ecuadorians allege is interference in elections. I just don't see it happening because of what I mentioned earlier. There is no better ally today in South America. Perhaps Brazil is the other one than, than Colombia. Speaking of sanctions, uh, you have economists, think tanks, and even U.S. government institutions like the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, have documented the devastating impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela's economy. Do you think it's likely that the sanctions also impact Colombia's economy, given the close economic ties that the two countries have? And what is it going to take for Colombia to stop supporting regime change and economic warfare in Venezuela? Yeah, good question, Leonardo. Uh, let me start with the last, the second part of the question. Uh, I really, uh, realistically speaking, I don't see how Colombia changes its uh, strategy towards Venezuela under the Duque administration. Uh, given the current climate in the hemisphere and the current relationship between Bogota and Washington. I, I, just, I just do not see that. I, I, I would see first Washington changing the relation with Caracas than Bogota with Caracas. And a clear, a clear example of that to make my point is I found it very interesting that two days ago, President Ivan Duque called uh, President Maduro a killer, an assassin. This comes two days after President Biden calls President Putin an assassin. Uh, so I, I just don't see how President Duque, after all the political capital he has played internally in Colombia, on Venezuela, um, uh, I don't see how he changes strategy, how he saves face. Um, I hope I am wrong because I think both countries need to talk. Um, these are two countries that need to find a way, like uh, President Pastrana, President Uribe, President Santos found to talk to Venezuela after 1998, despite the differences. I think that the relationship is too important for both Venezuelans and Colombians, for the governments not to, not to speak. But I frankly, you know, I have to say that today, I just don't see how that happens. Now, does, do the sanctions against Venezuela hurt Colombia? Um, indirectly, they do. 
indirectly they do. Uh, um, commerce between Venezuela and Colombia has historically been very high. Um, if you look at um, everything that comes out of the Colombo, the Colombian Venezuelan Chamber of Commerce, right? Historically, uh, you understand how important commerce and trade have been between the two nations, not to mention people, right? Uh, people seem to forget that uh, in Venezuela, there are over four and a half million Colombians that fled uh, to Venezuela when Colombia had the horrible conflict, not only with the FARC and the ELN, but also narco-trafficking in the 1970s, 1980s. So there are familiar ties that are, uh, that are affected by this. Um, but in terms of the sanctions, you just have to look at the numbers. You know, uh, back in 2008, for example, um, the commercial relationship between Venezuela and Colombia uh, was around $7.1 billion, billion dollars. Today, um, at least as of last October, during the first 10 months of 2020, this relationship was at barely $130 million. So somebody is impacted, not only consumers, but also producers along the border and both in Venezuela and Colombia. And what is interesting, Leonardo, is not that commerce and exchange probably has stopped. Um, the numbers that you read on contraband, and this is something that is published uh, in Colombia um, by the uh, several chambers of commerce. Um, it is estimated that last year, uh, there was approximately between 19 and 20 billion dollars in contraband. So, who is contrabanding? I mean, who is uh, taking place in this uh, activity of contraband that allows for goods to come and go between Venezuela and Colombia? So, uh, of course, people are hurt by sanctions. I mean, no one anywhere in the world is not hurt by sanctions. Sanctions, unfortunately, um, have gone from being a tool of diplomacy to being the policy of uh, both Colombia and the United States and several countries in Europe towards Venezuela. And um, that, of course, has an impact not only on Venezuela, but also on, uh, on, on uh, several uh, sectors in Colombia, no doubt. Well, thank you so much, Angelo. This has been a really great analysis. We hope to have you back soon. You've been listening to Dr. Angelo Rivero Santos. Thank you, Leonardo. That's it for our program today. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. Please follow our campaigns at www.codepink.org. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link.